You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. One has to wonder why anyone would choose to be buried alive. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want that to happen. Well, that's what this episode, The Man Buried Alive, which was released back on May 4th of 2011, attempts to answer. Now, as a bit of an update, the current record, according to the Guinness World Records, is held by a guy named Mike Meany, who voluntarily buried himself underground for 61 days back in 1968. But that record is far less than the ones I discussed in this episode, and there's a reason for that. Basically, all the records I mentioned were self-reported and therefore could not be verified. On the other hand, Mike Meany's could. Now, I should add that Guinness has since removed its Buried Alive category, and that's because of several ill-fated attempts that either ended up with the person having serious health consequences or even death. I guess what I'm getting at is don't even think about trying this yourself. Anyway, let's roll the tape. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman. Today's story is titled, The Man Buried Alive. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about breakfast cereals. And that's because I recently read an article listing the best-selling cereals here in the United States. So do you know which one is the best-selling here? And here are your choices in alphabetical order. Is it one Cheerios, two Frosted Flakes, three Honey Bunches of Oats, four Honey Nut Cheerios, or five Rice Krispies? Again, what is currently the best-selling breakfast cereal here in the United States? Is it one Cheerios, two Frosted Flakes, three Honey Bunches of Oats, four Honey Nut Cheerios, or five Rice Krispies? And I have to tell you, I was surprised by this answer. Anyway, I'll keep you in suspense until the end of this podcast, and then I'll let you know the answer. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Man Buried Alive. It is said that George Washington feared being buried alive so much that he said on his deathbed, quote, Have me decently buried, but do not let my body be put into a vault in less than two days after I am dead. That's the end of the quote. And he wasn't alone. The fear is certainly real, and it's hard to imagine anyone ever purposely choosing to be buried alive. Yet, a quick search of any historic newspaper archive shows that the 20th century has had a number of 
odd people, I would say, that were willing to do just this. I have to tell you, none of them had any sort of death wish. Instead, they were all out to set the world record for the most number of days being buried six feet under. 32-year-old Jacqueline just happened to be one of these people. As a former Alaskan gold miner, he had spent many days below ground, and he was certain that he, in fact, should be the man to hold that particular world record. So he was buried on June 18, 1933, in a hole that was dug at 9750 Southwestern Avenue in Evergreen Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Now, I did check Google Maps, and that's the current location of the Evergreen Plaza Shopping Center, just in case you want to visit. Now, don't think that Jack was just thrown into a hole and, you know, covered with dirt. That would be murder, after all. I mean, nobody could survive that. I mean, a proper barrel requires a casket. So Jack chose to live in a casket that measured a roomy 70 inches long by 29 inches wide by 23 inches high. That's pretty small. Now, for those of you who uh, use the metric system instead, that's about 178 centimeters by 74 centimeters by 58 centimeters. It was just large enough for Jack to bend his knees for a bit of exercise. Of course, there's one big problem with a buried casket, and that is you can't pack enough of everything you need inside and then just seal it shut. There are some essentials that need to be sent down from the surface from time to time. You know, food, water, air, you know, things that you need or you're going to die. So what they did is they cut a one-foot square vertical chimney-like chute uh, that went up to the surface, and it was positioned right above Jack's head so that he could look up and see what was going on. The coffin was outfitted with a few comforts. First, there was a small fan at the far end of the box that circulated air. Then there was a small radio that he operated with his toes. He couldn't reach it. Uh, And then there was an electric light that provided much-needed illumination, while an air mattress, of course, provided a soft cushion for him to lie upon. Supposedly, and I don't know if this is really true, a physician stopped by twice each day to check up on Jack using a very, very, very long stethoscope. He did have a thermometer to keep an eye on the climate down in the hole, but that wasn't enough to prevent one of the climactic hazards of being buried underground. That is groundwater. You see, during a heavy rainstorm, Jack awoke to find himself lying in four inches of the wet stuff. Now, since he was eight feet down, someone above came up with the idea of digging a nine-foot hole alongside Jack's coffin and then pumping the water out. But the most essential accessory Jack had with him was his telephone. That's how he made the time go by. They purposely advertised the Evergreen Park 7282 phone number to the public to generate attention for the stunt. He was actually listed in the phone book as the man who's buried alive. My guess is that there were times when he wished he hadn't done so, and that's because the phone rang off the hook night and day. The calls varied from the mundane to, you know, that you know you're going to get prank calls to, believe it or not, marriage proposals. I guess they didn't know that he was already married. By the time Jack was dug up, he had received nearly 2,000 phone calls. 
An August 17, 1933 advertisement in the Southtown Economist announced in bold letters, Notice Jack Lorene, the man who's been buried since June 18, 60 days underground, will be resurrected next Monday, August 21st, 3 p.m. from grave at 9750 Southwestern Avenue. And that's exactly what happened. After 64 days, 1 hour, and 10 minutes, I don't know how he did this, 1,200 people gathered to watch Jack Lorene being unearthed from his burial box. As soon as his casket was opened, he said, and it's a quote, it was a great summer vacation. I didn't have to worry about money or work, and that's the end of the quote. He also added, I want to get out now and have a good stretch. But there was one minor problem. He emerged from the earth to find that his car, which he had parked nearby, was stolen. But as they say, you can't keep a good man down. Um, I guess in Jack's case, you should say, you can't keep a good man up. That's because he was back in the ground five months later in February of 1934. He had chosen a new location at 829 Biscayne Boulevard in Miami, Florida. And once again, I checked with Google Maps, and that's right near where the American Airlines Arena is located today. Again, if you want to go visit, I'd really be surprised if you do. Anyway, he planned on 100 days in the box, but he just didn't make it and even come close. Now, he claimed that water from the bay kept flooding his coffin, but my guess is that there wasn't enough publicity for the stunt, therefore he couldn't earn enough money, and the stunt was abandoned. And then there was competition. On June 15, 1935, 20-year-old Gloria Graves, Graves, you get it, in the coffin? Anyway, her real name was Corinne Newstead, and she was buried in a stainless steel coffin at Ocean Park in California. Miss Graves insisted that the attempt was not a publicity stunt. Yeah, right. Uh, instead, she stated that it was strictly being done for science to show that, there's a quote, the mind is stronger than matter. So the big question is, did Gloria beat Lorene's record of 64 days? She didn't just beat it, she slaughtered it. Uh, Gloria stayed in the ground until September 15th for a total of 92 days, 5 hours, and 28 minutes. That's like 3 months. But just a few days after Gloria started her record-breaking attempt, guess who was back at it? That is Jack Lorene. He was once again in a pine box, being lowered into a hole, this time on a San Francisco beach. So Gloria didn't keep her record for very long. That's because on October 18th, Jack's coffin was lifted to the surface after 119 days in that subsurface tomb. After this record-breaking achievement, Jack announced that he was done with stunts and he quickly faded to, well, he was just totally forgotten. Um, Gloria, however, stayed in the news for just a little bit longer than Jack did. It was now her turn to break the record, but unfortunately she didn't get very far. Eight days into her quest, the Los Angeles police tried to arrest her. Apparently, Gloria was in violation of a city ordinance that prohibited indoor contests. One Lieutenant Jennings, Jennings uh, blurted down the hole, Hey, you're under arrest. Come on up out of there. Of course, she couldn't come up, so she replied, Come down and get me. And believe it or not, they did. 11 policemen and 14 city jail trustees grabbed shovels and dug her out. She and two attendants were found guilty on December 10th, and they faced the possibility of a fine or a short sentence. Unfortunately, I was unable to locate which of those two she received. 
Whenever I tell a story, I'm almost always asked at least one of the following two questions. First, and probably the most obvious, how did Jack or Gloria go to the bathroom? And I have to tell you, it was never mentioned in any article I found, but I could venture a guess. And that's because some of the articles mentioned that they lived on mostly liquid diets, which probably reduced the amount of solid waste somewhat. But I can tell you whatever form was passed through their body, we can be fairly certain that they pulled it to the surface very quickly. Second, how could anyone afford to take so much time off from work, you know, be buried for months at a time? Now, Gloria was a student, but Jack was married with children. He had responsibilities. And my answer to that is that they both earned money through all of the publicity generated. For example, Jack had nothing better to do in that hole than to call random people on the telephone and invite them over. And steady crowds each paid a dime to look down the chimney-like hole and have a short conversation with Jack. And of course, once they were pulled up, additional cash was earned on publicity tours. Normally, this is where the story would end. You know, since being buried alive seemed to quickly fall out of fashion, you know, as a stunt of choice. But it's not. In the mid-1960s, people started being buried alive again in attempts to break the world record. But everyone seems to have forgotten both Gloria's 92-day stint and, of course, Jack's 119-day record. So here's a quick rundown of the new attempts that I found in the newspaper archives. In February of 1966, Bill White claimed to grab the world record with his 55-day, 23-hour, and 31-minute burial. That's about half of what Jack did back in 1935. Then there's Mike Meany, who broke the the 55-day record two years later with his 61-day burial in April of 1968. Then Bill White grabbed the title back within days with a new record of 63 days. Three months later, in July of 1968, Pat Haverlin broke the record with 64 days. That's one more. Two months later, Emma Smith broke the record with 101 days. Now make sure you keep Emma Smith's name in mind for a bit. It will come up again at the end of the story. Now jump forward about 10 years to June of 1978. Here we find, once again, Bill White setting the record. This time it was 134 days. He really did break Jack Lorene's 1935 record this time. But Bill wasn't happy enough with that. He broke his own record again with 140 days in December of 1981. But this time he announced he was done. This was his 60th burial and he confirmed that it was his last. Well, maybe not. He came out of retirement in October of 1986 in an effort to raise money for liver transplant patients. Bill stopped after 46 days because only $725 had been raised. That was just a wee bit short of his $4 million goal. And while we're at it, let's go for just one more. The current record is held by Jeff Smith of Mansfield, England. He began his turn of being buried alive on August 29, 1998 and ended it 147 days later. What's most interesting about the story is that his mother was Emma Smith. That's the woman I told you to keep in mind with her 100-day record back in 1968. At the time Jeff broke the world record, his mom was still, after 30 years, the European Buried Alive champion, so he broke his own mom's record. 
And I don't know what you're thinking, but I can tell you that I have absolutely no desire to waste five months of my life being buried in a box to break Jeff's record. He can keep it. I know that I'll be buried in a pine box someday, but I don't plan on being alive when it's done. Needless to say, I'm in no rush. Uh, useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. The beginning of adventure. The first station in an underground railway. A posse of killers, and now they bring in a Chinese girl on a stretcher. They? Who are they? But first, a brief message from the makers of Fleischmann's Fresh Yeast. Now, I'll bet that when you modern housekeepers buy things for your families, you're pretty careful, aren't you? Pretty careful isn't the word, Mr. Dahlstead. We're regular Sherlock Holmes, looking for evidence that tells us we're really getting our money's worth. Well, that's the way you should be, especially when you buy food for your families. Because right now, it's more important than ever for busy Americans to have properly balanced diets. And this means getting adequate amounts of important vitamins, especially of the vitamin B complex, which you find in natural foods like yeast. So, before you or other members of your family start taking yeast for an added supply of vitamins, I want to suggest that you read the Fleischmann's yeast label first. Is there a difference in the vitamin content of various yeasts? You bet. Fleischmann's yeast is not only one of the richest natural sources of vitamin B complex, it contains other important vitamins as well. Just look at the label. Vitamin A, 3,100 units. Vitamin B1, 150 units. Vitamin D, 400 units. Vitamin G, 40 to 50 units. And remember, Fleischmann's is the only yeast with all these vitamins. And that includes fresh yeast, dry yeast, and any other kind of yeast. So, friends, if you want to add vitamin B complex and other essential vitamins to your diet, drink two cakes of Fleischmann's fresh yeast every day. Yes, drink it, America. To your health. That commercial's from the radio show I Love, A Mystery. The show is a serial program that ran twice weekly on the NBC network. Now, since it was a serial, I don't know the exact broadcast date, but it was somewhere between December 1st of 1941 and February 2nd of 1942. This particular serial was titled Secret Passage to Death. 
Fleischmann's was started by brothers Charles and Maximilian Fleischmann because they were unable to bake the light, great-tasting breads in the U.S. that they had enjoyed so much back in their homeland of Austria-Hungary. So they built a yeast plant in Cincinnati in 1868 with the financial backing of a businessman named James Gaff. Uh, now, Fleischmann's created the first commercially produced yeast on the U.S. market, and of course, the rest is bread history. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what to call News of the Weird Past. And our first tidbit dates back to July 12, 1904, where it's reported that the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Biddle of Mine Hill, New Jersey, had been robbed of all of their jewels three years earlier. And no, this wasn't late in being reported. The burglar was caught and he confessed to the crime, but the stolen jewelry was never recovered. He claimed that he had rowed out into the middle of Bud's Lake and thrown the goods overboard. None of the loot was ever recovered. Now jump forward to July 11, 1904, that's a day before this article appeared, and Mrs. Biddle went fishing for the first time in her life on that same exact lake. She caught just one fish, a 12-pound pickerel. But it wasn't just any pickerel, but one that swallowed a watch that had been stolen from their home. Our next tidbit dates back to September 19th of 1939, where it's reported that Sheriff George W. Brown of Princess Anne, Maryland, thought that something was very wrong with his cow, Brownie. She normally produced seven gallons of milk at a time, but she was no longer doing so. So he did a little bit of investigating. What he found out was that some 26th graders from the school located next door to Brownie's pasture had been milking her during recess to augment their lunches with some fresh milk. Their punishment for stealing the milk was no recess for two weeks. And our last tidbit is dated December 30th of 1954, where it's reported that 21-year-old Donald A. Parazino had been arrested by St. Paul, Minnesota police for leaving the scene of an accident two weeks earlier. He had hit and seriously injured Miles Cooper, age 49. And Cooper was rushed to the hospital and the leg of his trousers was split open so that the doctors could fix his broken leg. The ruined pair of pants was returned to the Cooper family. I don't know why they'd want it. And then a few days later, Mrs. Cooper took a look at them and decided to throw them away. But when she picked up the trousers, she found what she thought might be tire tracks on the pants. So she called police and they noticed a bloody imprint of three letters of the license plate were visible on the pants. So they were able to use photographic techniques to determine the fourth plate number. And while they didn't have the double letter prefix, police were able to whittle down the list to about 400 different people, but only six of them lived within the Cooper's neighborhood. Luckily, Parazino was the first of the six suspects that they interviewed, and he admitted to the crime. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I've asked what is currently the best-selling breakfast cereal in the United States. Was it one Cheerios, two Frosted Flakes, three Honey Bunches of Oats, four Honey Nut Cheerios, or five Rice Krispies? And what I'll do is I'll count down the top five in reverse order. Uh, number five is Frosted Flakes. Number four is Frosted Mini Wheats. Number three is Honey Bunches of Oats. Number two is Cheerios. And the number one best-selling cereal in the U.S. is Honey Nut Cheerios. I have to tell you, I was really surprised to read this. I just figured that Corn Flakes or Rice Krispies or Total was at the top. 
And I guess that's because Honey Nut Cheerios just wasn't on the market when I was a kid. I was raised on these great cereals like Fruit Loops and Super Sugar Smacks. Uh, Honey Nut Cheerios was first introduced in 1979, and they sold, get this, an estimated 102 million boxes last year. And that doesn't even include Walmart sales, since Walmart no longer reveals sales statistics. Oddly, the product may be named Honey Nut Cheerios, but it no longer contains nuts. They removed them in 2006 and replaced the nuts with natural flavors. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on The Man Buried Alive, as well as our question of the day regarding breakfast cereals, listening to our retro sponsor Fleischmann's Fresh Yeast, and the news of the weird past tidbits where first uh, was the stolen watch found in that pickerel, second the cow milk mystery that was solved, I really like that one, and the third, of course, the tire track trousers where they read the license plate off of the guy's trousers. Uh, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silderman. They're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. Additional resources, including the scans of some of the original research documents, additional comments that I have on the podcast, and some related links can be found on my Facebook page, which now has a real address. It's www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. Just make sure you write that as one word, useless information podcast. That's one word. So www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. Now, if for some reason you'd like to contact me, you can always drop me an email at useless at steve.sylman.name. You can also visit my uh, website, which is uselessinformation.org. You can also go to Facebook, and you'll see there's a link there to contact me. Now, I have to tell you, I've read all of the comments posted on my Facebook wall. Uh, I really do appreciate them, and few people suggest I do this a little bit more often, which I try to do. Uh, I've also tried to get some uh, international stories, which I'm working on. That's really difficult to do because uh, most of the information I have in the U.S. is from the U.S. But I really do have an excuse this time why I have not contributed to what's on Facebook. And that's because I had eye muscle surgery about two weeks ago to realign my eyes. They actually cut the muscles and sewed them back on after they straightened my eyes out. Now, I was not awake to see how this was done, but that's kind of what I learned happened after. Anyway, so I'm just kind of getting back into the swing of things, but I really do appreciate that people have gone onto Facebook and posted and uh, became a fan of the page. Uh, and as always, I appreciate if you can go into iTunes because that's really where most of the downloads occur from. I appreciate if you go into iTunes and if you can leave some positive comments to help increase uh, the number of listeners to this podcast. And once again, I thank you for listening and hopefully you'll tune in the next time. Bye. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.